DJ Simulationistas. So, with Dr. D, Dan Raymer, and Dr. J, Janice Palaganis, coming at you from the Center for Medical Simulation in Boston, Massachusetts. So buckle up your mannequin, and let's roll. Welcome to DJ Simulationistas. Up, you're here. Did you like that? It was a Z instead of an S. Do you like that? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you're here with Janice Pelagatis and and Dan Raymer. What's up, Dan? <laughs> Not too much. Uh, enjoying the nice uh, weather here and uh, working on. I have been. Uh, I have been working. I, I have some uh, little uh, invention ideas and. Uh, and so I'm building a little lab in my garage here in California. And so I spent a long time at Home Depot yesterday buying wood and uh, and things for my new lab bench. So uh, something interesting happened this week that uh, that I think we should talk about, which is that we got a, a, a short email from one of our um, awesome clinical instructors, letting everyone know that the new ACLS guidelines are out and that one of the major changes was that one of my favorite drugs, lidocaine, is back in favor. Wait, I can't and, tell uh, if that was sarcastic or not. <laughs> no, no. it. Uh, uh, I just always kind of liked lidocaine from my early days taking pharmacology in medical school i thought that's a cool drug you know yeah you know when it went when it went away that was a big deal like it took a while to get that out of our vocabulary yeah so you know it stopped being the drug of choice for treating dysrhythmias in cardiac arrest and acls and and amiodarone was favored. And when amiodarone was first introduced, there were lots of issues with administering it in a high dose. You had to open two vials and it had foaming problems and things like that. And so lidocaine was a much easier drug to use, but the evidence at the time showed that amiodarone was more effective. And mm-hmm. and so I just uh, so I haven't read the literature, uh, the current literature that that uh, promoted this change. I read one article, and I know there was a large uh, randomized controlled trial done of antiarrhythmics and witnessed cardiac and in unwitnessed cardiac arrests that showed that uh, survival was not different with any of them, but return of spontaneous circulation was better with lidocaine than with the other amiodarone or better than placebo. Mm-hmm. So, so, so apparently that and maybe, maybe other studies prompted a change. So, so what, what interests me is not the specifics of the medicine here, but the whole notion of how do you balance having an algorithm with thoughtful physiologic decision-making. Sure. Critical thinking versus algorithmic decision-making. Yeah. Well, uh, knowledge and, and critical thinking, because you're talking about the pathophysiology knowledge as well. 
Yeah. So, so, you know, it's always fascinated me having simulated, you know, thousands and thousands of cardiac arrests in simulation specifically caused by different things that the treatment is always the, the same once it comes to cardiac arrest and that, you know, that that treating the underlying cause in some cases would be much more helpful or ought to be much more helpful than following the algorithm. Right. And and so, you know, that comes up in debriefings just all the time. Oh, of course. Uh, in, a, in a study that I'm doing, I've been re- reviewing videos and there is a cardiac arrest in all of these cases. It's the very same case. And you know, you can just see the change in thinking patterns as soon as the arrest happens. You know, people switch into algorithm mode. They seem to forget to uh, search for or treat the underlying cause. Fortunately, sometimes the treatment for ACLS is also the treatment for the underlying cause, for example, in anaphylaxis treatment with epinephrine is obviously the choice. And so you're giving that for ACLS and it ought to help with the anaphylaxis. But I, you know, I can see how it's a very, it can be a very inefficient way to practice. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, having an algorithm gets everyone on the same page very quickly. You can see the teamwork happening much more clearly. People know what the jobs are. Somewhat. The the likelihood of forgetting things decreases. Absolutely. You know, how do you balance those things as a resuscitation team when when you come upon it? Yeah, you know, and I, I, I think the hard part when you're observing a team running a code is not knowing what they're thinking because, you know, you think that they're completely in algorithmic mode, yet they might be thinking about the underlying causes, just not saying it out loud, which we've seen time and time again, especially with our PEA cases. And so it's hard to know if people are actually toggling between algorithmic and critical thinking in the moment, I mean, in itself. Certainly can't disagree with that, that verbalization of thought process during these events is limited. Sometimes you can tell by actions, steps to treat the underlying cause are not taken, the thought patterns you know, might lead to treatment of the underlying cause much later mm-hmm. than it would have had the arrest not interrupted the train of thought. Things like that are are pretty uh, pretty good inferences from from their actions. But you're right. I mean, people's people's brains are flashing uh, uh, back and forth in different ways that don't come to fruition. When I when I debrief those cases. Uh, I try to make the point that it's important for people to verbalize their uh, their thinking, especially when they're operating in two different domains, because right. other people on the team may not be with them. Well, and, and not only that, like you know, as as we've learned from decision making and uh, intuitive decision making, when you're an expert 
all of the micro decisions that you make come so quickly and so naturally that you almost don't know what those little micro things are to be able to verbalize it because it just happens. And, and so I wonder how much is actually algorithmic thinking versus critical thinking yet. You know, I think what interests me about this topic is, I don't know if you read the book, The Half-Life of Facts by Samuel Arbidsman. And it's just so interesting because like everything we know today is wrong. Right. <laughs> it's, it's wrong. There's a half-life of facts and, and, this, and we're seeing this with the lidocaine and the amiodarone. And, and while algorithms are important and they benefit and, and, you know, have proven time and time again that it actually helps with patient safety. How confident are we in the knowledge that are that's in the algorithm? And in that case, is it worth it? <laughs> right. I love that. I, I, I love that, Janice. I think about that all the time as people are arguing about the algorithm and whether they should have given this drug or they gave the wrong drug or just you know, having been around for long enough to experience the, the half-life of facts uh, in medicine, you know, I always chuckle to myself, like, really? You really think it's a fact that if you give amiodarone that, you know, life will be better? <laughs> you know, it, it's probably true in a particular circumstance, but there are just too many variables to know when that's true and when that's not true and when it will change because some study will come along showing just the opposite. It's just so fascinating how how easy it is to convince for people to convince themselves and even, you know, convince yourself that that there's some underlying truth in things. Well, you know, it's interesting and I I love this topic because as you know, we've been teaching the feedback course and part of the feedback course is discussing and kind of journaling your latest feedback and discussing that. It's just so interesting where we are in feedback in the clinical setting because it appears, at least from this course, as as it was revealed to me, is a lot of the feedback that's given is, you know, to trainees to say, well, you have to do it this way and when the trainee asks why, the reason that's provided is, well, that's what the competency is, or that's what, that's what the policy is, or, and, and we as educators stand behind the policy, the research, and it's not really the reason. Like, for example, Breaking Bad News was one, and the trainee didn't follow the five steps of Breaking Bad News that they were, they had just learned. And it was like, and the, and the trainee in the conversation that was logged was the trainee asked why, and the educator says, because that's what, what we learned in our um, Breaking Bad News seminar. And I thought, well, unpack each of those bullet points, like each of those steps, not, you know, that the steps are important, but, but each of those steps are important because... You know, this creates respect with with the patient. And, you know, so we tend to forget that and we just stand behind the research, the algorithm. Uh, On the other hand, (laughs) there is value in some having structure, having rules 
And as you know, I'm not much of a rule abider, but uh, (laughs) I do like living in a society, in a world uh, uh, where there are rules. And most of the time I follow them and I try to think about when the rules should be broken and when they should be kept. But by and large, we benefit from having some structure, even if the structure is not optimal, there's value because everything we do, we do in concert with others. And when we deviate from those rules, if we don't communicate very strongly that we're deviating and why, you know, people will assume that uh, something is wrong, that you're wrong. Sure. So, so you have to, you know, you have to find that balance between how do you follow the algorithm, how do you follow the rules, and when do you deviate from them, and what constitutes a good enough reason to do so. And I, I think that's a real struggle, and practicing that and teaching people to do that, I think, is the the hardest thing we have in simulation, especially interprofessional simulation. You know, and I mean, just speaking to your point here is the importance of algorithms, because I think, especially for novice providers, less experienced, well, I guess anybody, when you're in those situations, the cognitive load is just so high in teams and individually that algorithms remove that and can allow you to work rather quickly to save lives um, and have the best outcomes. And so exactly, like, where's the balance? Yeah. Yeah. You know, our whole social existence depends on following some algorithms. When you, you when you walk into a social situation, there's a protocol for how you introduce yourself, how you, you know, uh, depending on your culture, reach out your hand or bow or acknowledge the other person, how you uh, structure your small talk, how you decide to uh, break away and go talk to someone else. We have, we have protocols for that. They may be unwritten, but we certainly learn them at an early age. And, you know, we notice when people don't follow them <laughs> and make, mm-hmm. sometimes make judgments based on that. We have we have algorithms in every part of our life so that we're not overwhelmed with decision making in right. emotional or stressful situations. Um so just following our algorithm, Dan. Uh-huh. <laughs> Thanks for uh bringing up this topic. It's it's always an interesting topic. I'm going to think about it more. Sounds good. And uh, uh, I think we both need to study up on our new ACLS. Oh, it's going to take me a while. It it took me a while the first time. This is interesting. Yeah. Here is the other disadvantage of algorithms when they change. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, All right, Dan. Have a great day. Okay. Take care. DJ Simulationistas. What's up? is brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. Find out more about CMS and learn about our simulation instructor training and course offerings at www.harvardmedsim.org. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.